Hey, so welcome from whenever and wherever you are watching the live stream. And I've got to say, thanks for sticking with us. We know this year has gone on longer than any of us ever hoped. But you guys being here, a part of Element, it's it's us coming together as a community, loving God, loving one another. So thanks for being a part of that. I would encourage you that after the live stream first goes up at 9.15 every week, we are doing this thing called Talking Element. And it's going to take a couple questions that we talk about during the message and kind of bring those out in, in a different way. Maybe if you are part of a GC, it might help you to learn how to ask some questions in that. Or if you're not part of a GC, it would help you to maybe walk through some of the questions that we do to begin to look at the things that we speak about in a way that goes really deep into our lives. So I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, Also, at Element, when we would meet together, typically every week I would offer anybody who needed a Bible that they could have one if they didn't have one. And if you're watching this live stream and you don't own a Bible and you would like one, I would encourage you to uh, email us, connectedourelement.org, and we would love to get a Bible into your hands. And not a you know, a digital copy from a smart device, but actually a real Bible with pages in it that is amazing to to thumb through and look at. We'd love to have a copy of the scriptures in your own hands. Now, today in the middle of the message, like always, we're going to put up a slide with a question on it. When that slide comes up, it's designed to be able to help you to take care of your kids if they're melting down or get a cup of coffee or even pause and journal the question and ask one another that and then hit play and keep going. So we're going to invite you to do that again today. If you have a smart device, you can download this thing called Uversion. And when you open up Uversion, you click on More and then Events in Uversion. And we will come up, if you're in our local area, by GPS in your smart device. If you are not, you type in 93455. And that will have us come up in that device. And you can click on the notes for today. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that really goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. If you'd be so inclined, you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Acts 28, verses 3 and 4. And it says, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he put them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take us today as we walk through the scriptures and listen to the things that you have to say to us, that we would see you as you are, as our great shepherd that leads us and guides us, that all the things that we look in our lives of of judgment, all the things we don't understand, that we would then trust those into your hands and be a people who live and walk in grace the great hope that you have given to us in the person of your son. Teach us to understand what that means, especially today as we walk through what we do with Paul. Amen. Amen. So we are entering our last chapter of the book of Acts. We are in this series called Acts Part 2. We did part one about four and a half years ago. And if you were to add Acts Part 2 and Acts Part 1 together, it would be almost 80 weeks. It's the longest series we ever did. And there's a little break in the middle in that, I know. Uh, Genesis was a little over 70 weeks. And people have asked, why do you spend so long in these books of the Bible? And the answer, quite honestly, is we want to help you to understand your Bible better. 
And so we take time to walk through the different parts of it. So maybe even a few years from now, you'll be reading the book of Acts and something will trigger and you'll remember and maybe go even a little bit deeper because of what you've learned throughout this series. Now to be up front, I have four weeks I'm going to do in Acts chapter 28 because there's four different things that happen in that. And then I will do one week to wrap everything up. So five weeks, including today. Where we're going to start today is right at the end of last week where Paul is in a shipwreck. Everybody comes to shore. The people who are traveling with, they were stuck in a storm. Paul warned them about, nobody would listen. And now the ship has broken up on the rocks or the reef or whatever's there because I'm not a ship guy. So it hit on something and it was getting broken up. And there's a couple miracles that take place in this. But the biggest one is that nobody died, that everybody came safely to shore, which is a promise that God gave to Paul. Now, the ship was destroyed, but everybody lived. And I asked you last week this question. I said, have you ever been in a wreck? For me personally, I have been in a few wrecks. When I was a teenager, I was a terrible driver. I am not much better today, but I was definitely worse then. By the time I was 17, I had five tickets and three accidents on my record, and I lost my license for a period of six months. Now, two tickets and one accident came out of one event. I was riding my dirt bike down the street. I took it from my uncle's house to my friend's house. My uncle said, don't ride that dirt bike down the street, and I said, Okay, and I started up and rode to my friend's house. Now, my friend only lived about five blocks away, but on the way, apparently, there was a marshal who saw me riding my dirt bike and turned on his lights and started chasing me. I never saw him, and 30 years later, I have no reason to lie about this, okay? I never saw the guy, but I come around the corner to my friend's street, and this guy comes pulling up in like a Scooby-Doo man, and he pulls right in front of me. So I slam on the brakes, I skid for 100 feet because the cops measured it, and then I slam into the side of this van. Then comes around the corner of the marshal. Woo, woo, woo. I was chasing you. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So I got a ticket for running from a cop for riding a dirt bike on the street and the accident for hitting the Scooby-Doo van. Now, I haven't really had that many accidents later in life. I had a couple. Like I was at the Home Depot and someone takes a shopping cart and they put it right up underneath the front fender of my truck so I couldn't see it because it's lower than the size of my truck. So I put my truck in reverse and I take this shopping cart and I just shove it into the car next to me. Put your shopping carts away, people. Don't just put them right there because there's people like me who don't look around them and just back up. Anyway, I left a note. We took care of the guy's car. The other one was a couple years ago. I'm leaving the bank, and as I'm pulling out of the bank, I'm a little distracted, but the lady in front of me slams on her brakes for no reason, and I tap her car. Not really hard, but I tapped her car. Now, if you have ever hit another car, you know the sound of car on car is very distinctive, uh, much like a shipwreck, and it feels like that down in your gut. And if you hit another car, the first thought in your mind is not, oh, I hope they're okay. Usually the first thought is, oh, I hope there's no damage. That's where we go. So I get out and I look at the other car and there's a scratch. It looked like it was already there, but what, what do I know? It wasn't a dent, it was a little scratch. Now I have had people hit me in a parking lot a couple times in my truck. My, my truck is, is a nice truck, but usually if it's not too bad, I'm like, yeah, whatever, you can go. That doesn't give you leave to hit me in a parking lot if you see me in it. But anyway, I usually let people go. Now the car that I tapped that I scratched a little bit, it was a beater. I mean, it held together with like bailing wire and duct tape. So I was really hoping it wouldn't matter that much. And again, it was a scratch. And the scratch was apparently a very big deal because apparently my definition of beater and their definition of beater were two completely different things. And so I scratched this person's car and they had literally acted like I had just scratched perfection. 
So I tried to calm them down. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. That didn't help. So then I pull out the pastor card. And I said, well, I'm a pastor at a local church. That didn't help. So I said, my name is Mike Harmon. No, I didn't say that. I actually gave him him my real name. But I realized in their eyes, I had scratched their perfection. Do you have any idea what it takes or what it costs to restore someone's perfection? It is essentially impossible. Nobody has that much money. Now, the ship that Paul was on was most likely the captain's perfection, and it went down. He probably did have insurance because that was something you could buy back then, but no amount of money could fix this problem. So you have a Bible, open to Acts chapter 28. And as we begin today, I want to draw this parallel for you a bit between our view of perfection and God's view of perfection. Many times we will approach God in this thing that we call worship as though we're doing Him a favor. Oh, I'm going to sing to you some songs. Oh, I might give you some of my money. I might be nice to that crazy person over there. What we need to understand is we do not come before God as a people who are entitled. We come before God as a people who understand who he really is and that we are those who have marred or have scratched, who have dented perfection. And we come before him as a people who need to be restored and only he can do that. We come before him as a forgiven people. All of us have damaged perfection. We've damaged those around us by hurting those we ought to love. And so as we come before God, we come as those who have lied and deceived and envied and coveted and judged and gossiped and slandered. And I am the last person in the world who deserves to come into God's presence. But God has done something wonderful in the person of Jesus. God takes how I have broken perfection by running my life into the wall of sin or running my ship into the reef of sin. And Jesus restores us to what we were meant to be that we can never do on our own. It is why we come into relationship with him by surrendering to him. Now, what you will see today in the text is that the people on the island that Paul ends up on have a karma view of the world. They look at things around them and think good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, that you have dented perfection, so somehow you have to work that off and fix it. And this is how a lot of the world sees things around them today. Even Christians do this. And they look at Paul and think, this guy must be terrible because another bad thing happens to him, which is a snake tries to eat him, so he must be a bad person. And then we're going to take that at the end and bring it around and contrast that with how Paul actually sees God and the world around him. And how Paul sees God as his great and his good shepherd. So let's quickly walk through these verses in Acts I want to look at today. So Acts 28, verse 1, this is where we left off last week. It says, after we were brought safely through, we, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, you can actually visit Malta today. There is an area called St. Paul's Bay where most historians and archaeologists believe where they came ashore. I'm going to show you some pictures right here. Uh, Malta is 16 to 18 miles long. It is 8 to 9 miles wide. has a population of about 400,000 people. It is very touristy now. Uh, you got to show up early if you want an umbrella on the water. So here is a picture of a bunch of umbrellas during most of the year around St. Paul's Bay. It's very nice. Now, here is another picture of St. Paul's Bay in the winter. Sandy, the lady that does our slides, said, she goes, can you find a better picture of this in winter? And I was like, no, because no one wants to go out there in winter. And that's why that picture looks so bad, because no one wants to go out there and take pictures because it's cold and nasty and terrible. And that's when Paul shows up. 
Verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all. But it had begun to rain and was cold. And so you get out of the ocean in the middle of winter. It's freezing cold, so some nice people build a fire for you. The people in this area of the world were known for their kindness. Verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt, no doubt, there, our judgment is true. No doubt, this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, the word justice there in your Bible, it is capitalized because in Malta, the people there believe that justice was a goddess, usually shown holding scales. And so they think that the sea missed Paul, but the justice, just the goddess justice, that cruel mistress has not allowed him to live. Now, I told you before that the sea is a classic symbol of evil. Uh, The snake is even more so. Whole cults, whole religions have been built around the power of the serpent. Many for evil, some for good, like today our symbol for healing is a snake wrapped around a pole. But in the Bible, you have a snake in the garden. It becomes one of the most talked about figures in literature. You jump forward to Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites are being a bunch of idiots again. And all these snakes come into the camp and they bite people. And Moses says, God, what do we do? And God says, take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, tell people to look at that bronze serpent on that pole because that's where their sin is going to be placed and I will heal them. Later, Jesus will come in John 3, verses 14 and 15 and say, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, it would be kind of ironic, not so funny to Paul, but ironic if all these things happened. Jails, riots, beatings, stoning, shipwreck, and then he's done in by a snake who shouldn't even have actually been there. Verse 5, he, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, interestingly about this, on Malta, there are essentially no snakes today. You want to live in a place with no snakes? Go to Malta. I'm looking for the place with no spiders. Haven't found it yet. But this is really interesting. Is no one's like, hey, cut a couple X's and suck the poison out and spit it out. They all just stand back and go, hmm, let's see what happens now to this poor guy. And it's really almost the exact opposite of what happens to Paul in this city called Lystra in Acts 14 on Paul's first missionary journey. Paul goes into Lystra. He heals a disabled man. Everyone's like, oh, he must be a god. Paul convinces them finally, I'm not a god. And then they decide to try and stone him. Here, Paul goes in and he gets bitten by a poisonous snake. Oh, he must be a murderer. He's a criminal. He doesn't die. And so then they say, oh, he must be a god. It's very interesting on a lot of levels. But really what Luke is doing is he is reminding us that there's no such thing as this abstract force in the universe called justice. Because there is a God of justice. And God will put all things right eventually as he has planned. And it is this God who made sure that Paul and all those prisoners and all those centurions and all those sailors got to the island safely. 
he will also see them safely to Rome. But it's almost like Luke can't stop telling you about this pattern over and over and over. It is accusation and then vindication. King Agrippa, well, this man could have been set free. The storm does its worst to Paul, you know, with the ship and breaking it apart. And yet Paul and his companions were saved. And now the snake and justice do their worst to Paul and he doesn't die. He's actually hailed as a god. Not that Luke or Paul wanted to be hailed as a god, but it's very interesting how Luke shows you the progression. Verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. Now that is a Roman name which shows that the island is under Roman jurisdiction. Uh, He received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Now most likely the reason they got to stay with this guy is a centurion commandeered some places to stay. I've got to watch this prisoner, and if i got to watch him, he's going to stay in a nice place. So for three days, they got to stay with Publius, the most important person on the island. Now you'll see that Publius' father is sick, and Paul will heal this guy's father. And this is also what happens in Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. Paul heals a leading man of a certain area. What Luke is doing is starting to tie the end of Acts back with Paul's first missionary journey and begin to bring all of this together. It's all full circle. Paul will heal Publius' father. A procession begins from all over the island where everybody wants Paul to heal them. And there are many people today who say that Publius and his father both became followers of Christ. Luke doesn't say that, though historically some people say, oh no, that actually happened, there's evidence of that. Luke doesn't say it, but I really hope it's true. So verse 8, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Also interesting here is that Luke is using medical terms at the time for fever and dysentery because he's a medical doctor. Actually, when it says they're waiting for Paul to swell up or fall over dead, those were also actually medical terms at the time. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Now again, this is Luke showing that the one who they thought was an evildoer, the one who they said they had no doubt that this man was a murderer, this man is the one who brought healing and life to the island in the name of Jesus. That is what Luke is showing us. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. They'll stay on this island for three months. Now, here's my slide with my question for you for today. This is my question. When in your life have you judged someone incorrectly? When is the time where you said, oh, I have no doubt they must be like this or they're doing this for this? Or maybe when is there a time in your life when someone judged you incorrectly? When they had no doubt about you and yet turned out completely different? So that's, that's my question. Now, we're going to keep going. I'm going to go in a direction that I've talked about many times before, but it's very important, especially in the text, to bring this back up again today. And that is this. We are a people who tend to judge too much too quickly. We will sit from our vantage point of what we view as perfection, and people will dent us or hurt us, and we'll say, well, if you did it like this, that wouldn't have happened. We get to sit back, and we say what is good, not God, and we make all these judgments of things around us. Like we say, if you date the right person in the right ways and wait for the right timing, then you will find the right person. Then you will live happily ever after. We say if you eat the right things at the right times and the right ways, well, then you'll have the perfect weight and live in perfect health. We say if you make the right decisions and surround yourself with the right people and work the right job in the right way, you'll have the perfect life. All of that 
is karma mentality. It all comes out of inappropriate judgments. Karma refers to the belief that there is a debt from bad actions that we have to work off and atone for ourselves. And Christians also fall into this mindset because sometimes it's much easier to think about the world in terms of us working off our debt rather than having to live in true redemptive grace that God brings. I will tell you, sometimes you can date the right way, whatever that even means, and you can still end up single, or you can be in a relationship, and a relationship is really hard because people are hard. Sometimes you can eat the right way, and you will still get cancer, maybe even the diabetes. Sometimes you can do everything right in your life, again, whatever that means, and still end up on a ship, under arrest, bound for Rome, getting shipwrecked, and attacked by a snake. I wonder how many people today we we'll look at the apostle's life and say, oh man, I wonder what Paul did wrong to deserve all the things that he went through. See, what we have to understand is the scriptures and Paul do not have a karma view of the world or of God. What Paul has a view of is God as his shepherd. Paul doesn't have a view of his personal life working out the way he wants. What he has is a belief and a trust and a faith in God that God will do whatever God wants and needs to do in his life. And Paul saw hard times and good times as both being filled with God's ultimate unwavering grace. Open your Bibles to John chapter 10. When Jesus comes, when he claims to be God in the flesh, he will use many of these shepherd ideas to help us relate to who he is. That a shepherd leads his sheep, a shepherd cares for his sheep. He will tell you that the great shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. And I think it's interesting how many times had Jesus has been painted and sculpted and put into stained glass as this good shepherd, and yet so often we miss the whole point of what he's really even saying. Because again, we look so much that we are people who have done it perfection and we've got to work it off, and so we don't trust him to really be the good shepherd that he is. John 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, Jesus says this in John chapter 10. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals somebody. And after he heals this person, the guy finds out who Jesus is, he decides to follow Jesus. And in following Jesus, he is kicked out of his synagogue. Now, as he's kicked out of his synagogue, Jesus comes and finds him and, and loves on this guy. But Jesus doesn't fix all this guy's problems in his life. Jesus doesn't stop the guy's hardships that he is going through. Jesus speaks about who he is as the shepherd and teaches the guy to trust in Jesus and all that he says. Now, today, a lot of people would probably walk away from God or because of what God's people did to them. But even here, Jesus is speaking about being the shepherd that we trust him no matter what we go through. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 23. This gives even a bigger picture of what a shepherd is. This is one of the most beloved sets of verses in the Bible about God being a shepherd. And King David writes this because King David himself was a shepherd who looked after sheep, so he understood this. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We read that and say, oh yeah, God's my great shepherd. I don't have to want for anything. Well, you have to understand that God is the guy who comes to David and says, David, you're going to be the next king of Israel. David's like, well, okay, that's a high honor. And the next thing that happens is David will spend the majority of his youth running from the current king who wants him dead. Well, doesn't the great shepherd mean I shall not want? Well, want is so much different in terms of what we say versus what God is doing in our lives. See, the good shepherd, he isn't trying to make our lives easy. Our great shepherd makes us into a holy people. 
that love him and can love others through adversity and trials because we trust him through all things. Like in this psalm, verse 2 says, he makes me lie in green pastures. There's two things in that. One, he makes me, and then lie in green pastures. It means the shepherd makes his sheep move to where the pastures are the greenest. And that may not be where we are right now. And a lot of sheep, they don't want to go anywhere. But the shepherd's like, no, I'm taking you where you need to go. It says, he leads me beside quiet waters. Quiet waters are not always the most readily available waters. So the shepherd makes his sheep go to these places. It says, he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For his name's sake. It is about the glory of the shepherd. And so the shepherd saves the sheep not only from predators, but the shepherd saves the sheep from themselves. He restores wayward sheep. And so when Jesus comes and he talks about being this good shepherd, it's more than evoking just a comforting image, though it can be that. But it's an image of power. Because these words for shepherds were also used for kings. Psalm 78, King David evokes, is evoked this, this, met, this power about who he is as a king. And it speaks about the kingship of him in Israel. The wise men will go and they will encounter King Herod. And King Herod's advisors will quote Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. In Ezekiel 34, God expresses his anger at the leaders of his people by calling them bad shepherds, and he promises to send a good shepherd to lead us and guide us home again. And Jesus shows up, and what does he say in John 10? I am the good shepherd. Now today, we tend to take Jesus' words for granted or change them into what we want them to be. As a shepherd, he is saying, I am your king. That doesn't mean you don't have hardship, but it means you can trust me in whatever you go through. Follow me. And when you stumble and fall, I will pick you up and carry you when you need it. And I think Paul's life can help us to understand what God is doing in our lives as well. Because our lives are not easy. And we will pass through some very tough times in our lives. Though most likely not as bad as Paul. I mean, I don't know, have you ever spent years in prison? Wait, wait for preaching the gospel. I know there's people spent years in prison, but for preaching the gospel. You ever been shipwrecked or attacked by a snake? See, this is why the scriptures remind us that we are a sheep that have a shepherd. But let me ask you another question then. What do you do when your shepherd is leading you and yet you feel like he is completely silent in your life? Because that's how a lot of people feel right now. We feel like God has abandoned us in the midst of this COVID thing. I run into so many people who have so many questions right now, and they feel so alone and shipwrecked. They, they feel like they have dented perfection. They're trying to find a way to restore it, but they can't in the middle of what is going on. And it's not strange to me that we would feel this way. Because we consume so much in our lives that go into our brains or into our hearts that we read or watch. And everything tells us that we're supposed to question God and question Scripture and question everything around us rather than trusting God as our shepherd. And if we fill our brains with all this negativity about who God is, I mean, it's impossible not to come out questioning Him on the other side of that. The problem is we have all marred perfection. And we keep running to other people for answers who have also marred perfection rather than trusting in the good shepherd who comes to save us. See, believe it or not, and this is going to be a big shocker for you, I know, but believers in Jesus and unbelievers in Jesus, we actually inhabit the same world. I know, crazy, right? We will see the same circumstances, but we will see them hopefully differently. 
We will see the same sunrises and sunsets. Hopefully we will agonize over the same multitudes of unfed children and gun violence and refugee crises and elections and, and pandemics. And most believers I know do not claim to have seen visions like Paul. They don't hear voices like Paul. They don't do miracles like Paul. And yet we still to be, choose to believe and trust in and bet our entire existence on a God that many times we do not see and we cannot touch. That His Spirit leads us so we can hear, but sometimes God does go silent in that. And from what we know of people who have had encounters with God where God does some really amazing things, it doesn't always make them trust God more. Just look at the Israelites in the Old Testament. They're led out of slavery by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. The the sea parts. They get manna every morning. They get water from a rock. They see smoke and lightning. And yet a few months later, they're belly aching about having to camp out in the wilderness. And they start whining about how they want to go back to Egypt and slavery so they can have leeks and onions. Yuck! Who wants that? And so God has reasons for the way that he leads us. Let me tell you a little story. Uh, there's once a lady named Agnes. From the time Agnes was a little girl, she just believed and loved Jesus. I mean, not just that. She was really on fire for Jesus. She wanted to do great things for God. She says she wanted to love Jesus as he has never been loved before. And so she knew Jesus was with her. She had an undeniable feeling of his presence and his calling in her. She writes in her journal, journal My soul at present is in perfect peace and joy. So she leaves her home, leaves her family, leaves everything, and becomes a missionary. She gives Jesus everything. And then he goes silent. At least that's how it felt to her. She writes in her journal, after years of this perceived silence, Where is my faith? Even deep down there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain. I have no faith. And faith there isn't just you know, this belief, it's trust. I have a hard time trusting you in the midst of these things. She says she tries to pray. I utter words of community prayers and try my utmost to get out of every word the sweetness it has to give. But my prayer of union is not there any longer, and so I no longer pray. On the outside, she loves people, she serves, she gives of herself, she smiles. But she said she even spoke of her smile as a cloak that covered everything. This, this inner dryness and pain over the absence of God continued year after year for almost 50 years. There's one brief respite in the middle of that, but almost 50 years. Now, Agnes goes by another name. You might know her better as Mother Teresa. And in the end, she wanted her journal and all of her letters destroyed so it didn't hamper or hurt somebody else's faith. But they all got out there. And the interesting thing that happens is her willingness to persist in the face of this agonizing silence hasn't really destroyed a lot of people's faith. It's actually brought a lot of great comfort and a lot of great strength. I would say more so than an inner life of ease certainly ever could. See, we have all these formulas that people try and give us today that are guaranteed to make us feel closer to God. And many times they just do not work. Now, some people see Mother Teresa's struggle as evidence that she butts up the reality that God's just not really there. Like atheist Richard Dawkins told people not to be taken in by the sanctimoniously hypocritical Mother Teresa. I mean, that's a bad strategy. You want to get people to come an atheist? You don't take pot shots at Mother Teresa. Anyway, it's not your best move. But like Paul, Mother Teresa didn't have this negative understanding of God as her shepherd. Not at all. She she never once rejected God's call. And she had a friend that she talked to in the midst of this. And this friend actually gave her some advice, three things she really needed to hear. The first one her friend said was this, is that there is no human remedy for the silence of God, of how God chooses to lead us, so she should not feel responsible for it. The second thing her friend said was that a feeling of the presence of Jesus was not the only or even the primary evidence of his presence. 
He said, actually, in fact, this craving to know God and follow him is a sure sign that God is actually present in your life. And the third thing that they said was that the pain that she was going through could actually be redemptive for those around her to see the struggles that she went through. See, Jesus experienced silence from the Father. In Matthew 27, verse 46, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his suffering becomes redemptive for us. And so Mother Teresa goes through these things, and he says, you can suffer redemptively, and other people can grow because of what you yourself have gone through, trusting God in the midst of the darkest places. David Winter is a man who contracted this disease, and over a period of time, he actually went blind. And he needed people to help him find things and navigate stairs and get around life. And this is what he writes after he goes blind. He says, never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. And this is true for how we are as a people who trust God as our great shepherd. I think for Paul, there were many times he got down in the dumps. And you'll see that we actually talked about that in one of the Acts messages. Because he had all these personal circumstances. But he still trusted God in the midst of it. No matter what everyone else thought of his imprisonment, his shipwreck, his snake charming skills, how he had dented perfection and he needed to work it back off. Because Paul never saw things as karma. Paul saw his great shepherd leading him exactly where he needed to be. And for us, like Paul, there's a great shepherd who longs to lead us home. God offers us purpose and grace, even when we cannot hear it or see it. And this, again, is why faith is about trusting Him. It's not these feelings of belief we muster up, though that can be part of it. But faith is essentially trusting what God has said. I mean, this is really, in the end, the whole point of the gospel, trusting what God has done to rescue us. Jesus rescues us from our sin and ourselves, from how we have run our vehicles into the wall of sin and dented and scratched them. And Jesus comes to rescue us and restore us to what we can never be on our own. In the story, the sea and the snake have done their worst and they are overcome. N.T. Wright says, new creation is happening and the power of evil cannot stop it. See, Paul may arrive in Rome with more scars and bruises than he would have liked or than he started with, but the gospel in which he trusted is still flourishing because nobody could stop his good shepherd. And this is an understanding for us that we are a people who have marred perfection, but we don't work it off. It's not karma. We understand that we have a good shepherd who has come to rescue us from the places we have run our ship or our car or our lives headlong into this thing called sin. Jesus steps into where we are. He lays down his life for his sheep to restore us to who we are meant to be. We can never fix perfection. But God can restore us to the state that he intends for us to be as his children and as his followers. This is one of the reasons at Element we talk about this thing called communion every week. It is a reminder of what Jesus did in his person to rescue and save us. Jesus goes to the cross, and that's why you take bread or a cracker and and you break it and you dip it in wine or grape juice because his blood was shed for you and me so that we as a people can be restored to who God always intended for us to be. That is the good news of the gospel, that God has come to rescue us in the person of Christ. And then as a result of that, we become children of God. We get raised to new life. We get to live out in this world as redeemed, restored, renewed people again. And there is great joy in that. There is not karma. There is not things we have to work off. Jesus did the work for us on the cross. And we trust that. And so our great shepherd calls us to himself 
to live life with him, to love him as he has first loved us. And if you guys need prayer today, maybe you're in a spot right now where you feel like you're trying to work something off before God. Or maybe you have this warped view of the world around you where you're always judging those around you and you want to stop that. We would love to be able to pray with you. You can put it in the side of the comment section on the, on the YouTube stream. You can send us an email at connectourelement.org and someone will get in touch with you if you'd like someone to and we will pray with you and talk with you through these things. You can always give uh, online. We give because God gives so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We emulate our good shepherd and, and how we give as well. So you have that opportunity every week. But I would encourage you also to take some of those sermon notes and some of those questions and begin to walk through those things so that we would encourage one another to trust our great and our good shepherd who leads us and guides us, who has sought us out when we were wayward and brought us back so that we would be able to be in those green pastures again that he tends for, uh, intends for us to be in and that we would be those who glorify him by how we live and we would begin to have a proper view of our own rescue and salvation. And so we would speak about that and live that way in the world around us because our God is rescuing and good. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take us as a people and have us begin to understand your great grace given to us, that we would understand you as a shepherd, that you lead us as sheep where you intend for us to be. And God, so often it seems that we get so distracted by so much stuff that we stop hearing you. And it seems like you are silent, and yet you are still leading us. That you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so to teach us, begin, teach us to live in that assurance of your leading, of your guidance, of your grace. That our hearts and our lives would be completely yours. And that you would gain great glory as we follow you as our great shepherd. And we ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.